It's a joy to have Mark back with us again. And uh, dear brother, we appreciate your ministry so much. And I was thinking this morning, um, working through our worship service, and you guys got the cool millennial guy and the groovy art guy. Now it's time for the cranky old man. Okay? So if you would, get your Bibles and let's go to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Thanking God for Chillicothe Baptist Church today. Are you? Man, God has done a great work among us in so many ways. An inward work in our hearts, the heart of the church, as well as seeing people come to Jesus in these days. And uh, so we're so grateful, grateful, very grateful for what God's doing in our midst. Ephesians chapter 1, I'll talk to you about power in praying. And um, so did you know about everybody prays? There was some research done some years ago, not too long back, and it found that 30% of atheists pray on a regular basis. Everybody prays. 17% of people that said they didn't believe there was any God at all, they still pray. And so we find that people pray, and uh, probably several of those wouldn't admit that they pray. But people do pray. The question is, what is prayer? Why should we pray? Who can pray and actually be heard? And what drives prayer? What causes it? We're talking about true prayer. We're not talking about uh, what humans get to label as prayer. We're talking about the biblical definition, the biblical usage of it. You always have to differentiate between the two. You realize that for whatever God has, the devil has a counterfeit. And so when you use the word prayer, your mind is thinking from a biblical perspective, what does the Bible say about prayer? And you're talking to your neighbor about prayer, and they go, I pray all the time. And you need to understand that word prayer and your word prayer have nothing in common. One mumbles into the atmosphere. You, on the other hand, talk to the triune eternal God. Those are different altogether. We can say Muslims pray. Well, they have prayer actions, to be sure. And they're supposed to do that several times a day. And so, uh, yeah, you're supposed to. But is it biblical prayer? No. And it's not just a matter of, is there prayer in error in some way? Of course, every Christian that prays, prays some errors. Do we not? We, every one of our prayers are flawed. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about is not having even the permission to pray. Even though they may take actions of prayer, they're not granted prayer by God. So there's a difference between these things. Don't, don't just ask somebody at the flower shop to pray for you. What, what difference does that make? Do you hear people on television, our thoughts and prayers are with you. I'm thinking, whatever. Okay, that sounded squishy. And so I want somebody that understands the Bible and, and prays like God says he wants to be prayed to. Right, and so when I when I first got married, I, I I learned very quickly there is a way to talk to my wife and then a way not to talk to my wife. Guys, do you know that? You understand that, right? And so you you learn, and they they're great teachers. They they, they teach you, and um, and so you, you know you learn. And, and God is the same way. There's a way you talk to Him, and a way you don't talk to Him. And there are people that have permission to talk to Him, people that don't have permission to talk to Him. There's only one prayer He's going to answer for the sinner. Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me, a sinner. That's the prayer God will answer for the sinner. But for the saint, oh, we have a different privilege. So look in verses 15 through 
23. Shelly was asking me earlier in the week, like, what's the scripture passage? I know it's not the rest of the chapter because that's way more than what you can cover. Well, that's a challenge, Shelly. So now I'm going to prove you wrong. So, amen. Well, the unit goes together. This is actually one sentence in the Greek here. <laughs> can you imagine? Paul would have failed every English class. You know, uh, you know too, I, I remember working on my stuff at, at Southern Seminary, like, your, your sentences are too complicated. And I finally got frustrated with my advisor and said, well, Paul did it. And then he emails back, well, you're not Paul. And so that was the end of that. So here, here we have this one thought, and it's really about prayer. Now look at the cause of prayer in verses 15 and 16. Here's what he says to this church at Ephesus. Remember, he's not talking to an individual. Even though there is individual applicability to everything that's said here. We need to learn to hear the Bible as a group of people. It's us. Not just me, but us to whom the Bible speaks. And he says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith. Now, Paul was not from the south, but the Greek here is y'all. It's all of you. It's a bunch of you. It's not just one person. See, we, as Americans, we read everything like it's singular. Oh, God is speaking to me. No, he's speaking to us together. And if you get that from the scriptures, when that's happening, then it helps you to interpret correctly and to see things more clearly. So here he says, because I've heard of your all's faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, because of that, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. So the cause of prayer. There are a couple of things that are moving Paul to pray. He says, first of all, their faith in the Savior. The, the faith of the Ephesians had become famous. Notice he said, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, Paul had not seen these people for about four years. Why? Well, he's been busy in prison. Paul is writing this letter from prison. Now, I want to remind you, this is not RCI. This is a grungy cave hole. There's no restroom. There are no meals coming. Nobody's coming to clean. There's no one that's your advocate for inhumane conditions in prison. It doesn't work that way. Rats, that's the prison that he's in. That kind of thing. If you've ever seen pictures of it, they lower you down in a hole, through a hole in the ground, and down you go. There's no out. There's no hope. And you just live in squalor with other people. And what does Paul do? His thought is not for himself. His thought is not from all the trials and troubles he's going through. Please pray for me because I have a midterm coming up. That's not it. Please pray for me because people at work are being mean. What, what does Paul say here? For this reason, because I've heard of your faith. His mind is on them. His mind is on the church. The people of God. We have so many people in our world today, especially in this nation, that they love to be a part of the church, but they don't yet love the church. They love what the church gives to them, but they don't love the church. And so he, here's what he says. I've heard of your faith. He's in prison, has been apart from them for four years, and their faith is famous. Now, wouldn't you like to be that kind of church? You can be. You can be. 
So your faith, he said, their faith in the Savior, your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not just any old faith, not just we just believe that the Browns are going to win, that the Reds are going to win the pennant this year. You know, we just believe things are going to work out good. It's not that kind of silly faith. This is faith in the divine object. It is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about what? Their conversion, of course. You have to reflect back upon the first 14 verses when he talks about their election, their predestination, and their adoption as the children of God. That it is an unchangeable reality according to the purpose and will of God. God saw to it. He brought them to himself. It's an unchangeable reality. And they trusted upon Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so what Paul is saying is this about you is what the world knows. That this is you. God's election, predestination, adoption has led to this outcome in your life. What is the outcome? First of all, their faith in the Savior. That's the outcome. Faith in the Savior is not the cause of election. Faith in the Savior is not the cause of predestination. Faith in the Savior is not the cause of adoption. Do you hear me? It is election, predestination, and adoption that is the cause of their faith in the Savior. To God be the glory and praise and honor forevermore. This is the cause of it all. And so the outcome, the evidence that these things are real about them is their faith in the Savior. And Paul sees that and it causes him to give thanksgiving to God. If you've, if you've ever been part of a, of a church start, some of you may have done that, helped to start a church before. Or some of you may have actually been part of planting a church before. And you know the thing that grieves you is when you give birth to that thing. And you put all of your heart and mind and soul into that thing. And if you hear later that they've gotten off track, it's grievous. But if you hear of them. all that they're trusting on Jesus. And they're doing what they ought to do. That their conversion was really real. I was talking to some guys yesterday, and I want to thank our, our music people for coming and leading in worship. And I reminded Dan yesterday, I know he reminded our people that we're discipling other churches through what we're doing. We want other churches to see there's a way to do modern stuff and still keep in touch with the past. We want them to see that. We're not throwing away Rock of Ages cleft for me. We're just adding a guitar riff from Nick Carl, okay? So we're not throwing that stuff away. We want our younger generation to grow up with it as well. But we're dressing up a little bit. If you notice, they dress differently. We're going to take the suit and tie off of that hymn and we're going to put a flannel shirt on it like Dan wore today. Right? We want our people to connect with those things from the past that are real and true. And so I was telling our people yesterday, I said, you know, guys, some of y'all want to go out and start a church. And what you have in mind is this. This is a church plant 60 years in the making. You can't jump from a Bible study to this in one year. Unless you compromise the gospel. I mean you can draw with lollipops and cotton candy or something. But if you're going to stay true to the gospel. So when you see that. I wonder the people that helped Darty Stowe and those people. If they could see today. The encouragement would be. I, I remember I had a guy on staff with me one time. Paul Nevels, and Paul was about 80-something years old. I, I can't remember his age. He was like Methuselah. I first met Paul. It was raining outside. And Paul said, let's go out to eat. I said, okay. 
And so it's raining, and I hold the door of the church building open to go get in the car. Paul's like 84, 85. He runs to the car and jumps a mud puddle. And I'm looking at that like, oh, dear Lord. Okay, so I'm at Paul. But I talked with Paul one time, and we went to Cleveland, and we were meeting in this big facility up there in Parma and uh, talking to people about, I think they had a world changers thing up there, and Paul went with me. And Paul said, by the way, this church started in my living room. You see, it, it's not. And so Paul, Paul, the apostle here, gets to look at this church that basically starts in his living room and he sees it now. It's a powerhouse of Christianity. This thing is strong. I mean, it has Timothy as its pastor. John is one of its members. The apostle John is one of its members. And so he's looking at this and he sees their faith in the Lord Jesus that it was not in vain. It was not just saying things with their mouth, but they had confessed with their heart that Jesus is Lord. Then also this, the cause of his prayer was additionally this, the love for the saints. He says, I, I thank God. I, I don't cease to give thanks to you for these reasons. I've heard your faith in the Lord Jesus. And verse 15 again, and your love toward all the saints. Now, it might be helpful to underline the word all. All the saints. Faith in Christ first, then love for his brothers and sisters will follow. It's a, it's a universal law. It's a universal rule. We love the Lord Jesus. We love his people. And the kind of love that he's speaking of here, of course, is that sacrificial love. It's not emotionalism. It's the kind of thing, it's the kind of loyalty that we have for one another. We never give up. We just keep at it. We just don't give up. And so he says, you have that love for one another. Remember what John said in 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love, that he, speaking of Jesus, laid down his life for us. And so therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Giving yourself away for the benefit of others. I try to preach this and drive this home when people are trying to join this church. This is not a mall for you to come and get what you want. This is a congregation that belongs to the Lord Jesus for you to give yourself to. You've got to give yourself to these people. God has brought you here to give yourself away. How long? Until there's not a last breath in you. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for us. That demonstrates the love of Jesus. Now, the troubling word is this word all. I'll tell you the saints I like. Can I tell you that list? I like St. Augustine or St. Augustine if you prefer to pronounce it that way. It's fine. And Francis of Assisi. He's good. St. Patrick is awesome. Right? I mean, if you read his missionary story, it's awesome, man. It's great. And so I can admire him. And there's a long, St. Ignatius. Oh, man, I like that guy. So lots of those. But I've noticed one thing about all the saints that I like. They dead. You know the ones that are hard to like? Those that are alive. The saints are hard. It, it's not always easy. I, 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 you know, and now I know for me personally... Uh, you know, I'm especially easy, but for some of you, it's hard. And it's, it's very difficult. And people, their personalities are different, and we have expectations of people and their behavior and so on and so forth. So it's, it's, it's very difficult to do. But this church had such a strong faith in the Lord Jesus. Their conversion was so thorough that they had a love toward each other, toward all the saints. Now, not everybody that calls themselves a follower of Jesus truly is a follower of Jesus. 
So you're not going to have that bonding with them. Have you ever been somewhere and you figure out somebody's a Christian just by being around them? You, you don't, they don't, it's not that they say anything about the Bible or anything. You just kind of figure it out. And uh, Julie and I, we're, we're on our 25th wedding anniversary trip. And so we were, we were down in Mexico. And there's this young couple. And, you know, they were uh, kind of hanging around the same place we were a little bit. And, you know, they do these stupid classes during the day, you know. And so Julie said, let's go to one of these. I'm like, okay, let's go. And so you go. And this young couple's there. And then finally... We, we had not talked one bit about church, nothing. And this guy comes up to me and says, hey, yeah, are you a Christian? And I, I'm thinking to myself, have I been acting like a pagan? He's getting ready to witness. I hope not. I'm going down the list like, what have I been doing? I think I've been only up and up here. I think all good. And I said, um, yeah. He said, can I talk to you? And I said, yeah, what about? He said, about our marriage. And I'm like, Okay, and so then I've got to talk to my wife like, okay, I brought her down here to get away from church stuff. And lo and behold, I find a ministry opportunity. And um, so we, we, during that time, we met with them and talked with them. And we, we communicated with, afterwards, we communicated with them some afterwards as well, trying to encourage them in their marriage. They're sweet people, but they were just at a kind of deadlock. And um, how did we find each other? Nobody else asked that. As a matter of fact, I remember one time I waded into the swimming pool and there was a, a group of guys, seven or eight of them there, and they're all talking and what they all do for a living, you know. And I'm sitting, I'm not judgmental, I'm just sitting there listening, you know, and then finally gets to me, what do you do? I'm like, well, I'm a pastor. It cleared the pool. <laughs> then I'm like, honey, we got this all to ourselves. So like if you ever want to go on a vacation and you want to take me, I can get you private swimming pool everywhere you go. It's just, it's that easy. So, you know, but your love for all the saints, love for the people of God, they're not always easy to love. But here's the issue. How do you get where you love them? How do you get, how do you get there? It depends on what you look for. See, this church at Ephesus is not a perfect church. As a matter of fact, Jesus in the book of Revelation has some things to say about this church, right? It's not a perfect church. But you know what Paul's focusing on right now? I mean, he's going to give them some correction. That's coming in the book. You know what's going to happen with Paul. But you know what he's doing up front? He is giving them encouragement about the good things that he sees. If you look for good in your church, you'll find it. If you look with a critical eye about everything, you'll find it. It depends on what you're looking for. And I always tell the members of our church, listen, let me do the correcting. You just do the enjoying. I exist, I deal with the misery so you all can be happy. Don't get into it. If you see something is a problem, let me know and then let it go. I'll take care of it or I'll die off and leave it, one or the other. But it depends on what you look for. Now, there are churches that are problematic. Wow. We've been in some of those. Ugh, the problems seem insurmountable. But every time in every church, you always find some people that God is working in a mighty way in their life. And so here we have Paul saying, this is what I look for. I see in you, your faith in the Lord Jesus is real, and therefore it produces love toward all the saints. We've got to keep going. What is the content of the prayer? Now, verses 17 and 18. He tells them in 16, I, I keep praying for you, remembering you in my prayers. Do you remember to pray for your church? Pray for your church. Then verse 17 and 18, that the, Lord, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you 
the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to that which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So in his prayer, there's the proper direction. To whom is he praying? To the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Now I've been in prayer meetings and things with some of my charismatic friends and they start talking to the devil. That's when I go get a drink of water. Satan, we bind you and all that stuff. I'm like, well, y'all do the binding thing. I'm going to go get some water. You know, I got to get a cup of coffee or something. Talk to Jesus. The, the devil is not worthy of one breath of your prayer. Not one. Don't even acknowledge that. Don't, don't, give, don't give him that. Don't, don't blame every hardship. Oh, well, the devil's really working overtime. No, he's not. He ain't working on you. He's at my house every day. It's not like that. So, you know, I mean, does Satan do things? Of course. But remember, everything works together for good to those who love God or are called according to his purpose. God has got that. God has got it. So talk to the Lord about that. So this is what Paul, it's direct to the Father of glory. And again, we see the God of our Lord Jesus Christ because he's speaking of, in this section of the Bible, he's speaking of the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus' work here on this earth in redemption. So we just talked about that. So, of course, he's going to word it in that way. In other places, we see that the deity of Jesus is expressed. We know our Savior is, is one, he's one man, but he's two natures. The divine nature and the human nature. He's both. That's our Savior. So look at this, though. It's a proper direction, but a purposeful desire. What's his purpose? Well, you know, we get that purpose word or result word, and that is in verse 17, that. This is what he's hoping to see happen. That. This is, this is his purpose. This is what he's driving for. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, do what? May give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. What is the hope to that which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So what's, his, what's, his, what's he driving for you? What's his purpose? His purpose is that the Spirit would give you wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. Now what is wisdom? Wisdom is the right use and understanding of knowledge. There are people that have knowledge about the Bible, but they have no wisdom. When I was first in ministry, I had two friends... And they were younger guys. One was a little older than me. One was younger. And they talked to me during the week like, hey, me and so-and-so got together, smoked some dope, and read the Bible. Seriously, I'm not kidding. And they would talk about it. So, well, man, here's what we're learning, dude. And I thought, you all are fools. You guys are idiots. You know, but why? Because they had no wisdom. They were gaining knowledge, right? Foggy knowledge, but knowledge. But they were fools. They were unwise. You know, people go to church, they're like that too. They get all puffed up with knowledge. They don't have any wisdom. Wisdom is the right understanding of what you've just learned and the right use of it. My dad used to tell me of a guy that almost, you know, back in the day before you had the internet where you actually had books, and he and a couple other guys would always be working on their cars, you know. And my dad had a, I guess it was his 55 Chevrolet or whatever he was working on, and um, this guy would show up, and he had the manual virtually memorized. 
And they would say, they would ask him, like, where is this or whatever? He'd point to us right over there. But this guy could not turn a wrench. He couldn't do anything. That's an example of having knowledge, but not having the ability to use it. And as Christians, we can pile our, our minds up with a lot of information, but not be wise. How do you get wise? The Spirit of God has to give it to you. There is no other way to get it. Now, what's interesting about this is that Paul asked that God may give you the spirit of wisdom. Now, I know some of your translations have uh, spirit not capitalized. I, I, I recognize that. But are you really sure that the human spirit is able to give you wisdom and knowledge of him? No. It's capital S. It's the spirit. And even if it is human spirit there, that's the right translation. It is God's spirit that gives that spirit the understanding. So don't quibble with me over that because you're going to lose. So don't start, okay? So what, what is it? What, but the question here is, these people are Christians. They're followers of Jesus. And he's praying that God would give them the spirit of wisdom. Now, wait a minute. I thought when you trusted Christ, you already had the spirit of God in you. What is going on here? Well, this is pretty simple. There is the outpouring and what I call the effusion of the Spirit. And where the Spirit works in an amplified way in your life or in a specific way. That's what Paul's praying here. He's not praying for a new presence of the Spirit because you lost the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the operation of the Spirit. Always get that. People misread the book of Acts because they take it as the presence of the Holy Spirit rather than the operation of the Spirit upon the church. So he's asking for a certain kind of operation, activity of the Spirit in their lives. And so he's asking that they would, as believers, that they would get this. Now notice the activity, where it is. The, the means by which they're going to have this revelation of Jesus that is a manifestation, understanding of Him and knowledge of Him. The means is by having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. That you may know by experience. You may know for certain something. Note that where God is working is in the heart. Now, what is the heart? It's the core. It's not, he's not talking about this physical beating mechanism here that pumps blood through your body. But what he's speaking of is the very core of your being. It's not just knowledge that you have. It's not just information that's in your mind. The Spirit of God is going for your heart, the very core of your being, so that you'll know. There's a difference between knowing about something and knowing something. So that you'll know. You'll be convinced of this without any doubt. Never wavering. What will you know? What is the hope? What, what does it mean by hope? Is that just a, a blind shot in the dark? Is it chance? What is it? No, no. It's a thorough, unchanging, convinced anticipation of what God has promised to do. We're future-oriented. We're looking for what God has promised to do. And it is the Spirit of God that will convince you of that in your heart. How do you get convinced of it? When you gain more knowledge of Jesus, you begin to understand Him better and trust Him more. And as you do, these things... And, and what is the hope? He's called you to that. He's called you to be a person of hope. Hope in what? Just anything that the world's going to get better and better? No, not that silly hope. The hope in the Green New Deal? No, not that hope. The hope in the Republican Party? No, no, there's nothing to anticipate there. 
just more of the same. We have a hope that is in the heavens. It is guarded by God. It is unchanging as His nature. Nothing, nothing can pollute it. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can overturn it. Because it's founded upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not going to change. So put your hope in that which is unchangeable. This is what He's calling us to. Something that you can hold on to. There's nothing in this world that you can hold on to and be sure that you're going to have it tomorrow. Not even your marriage, not even your children, not your bank account, not even your job. Nothing in this world can you hold on to say, I know I'll have this tomorrow. You can't. But you know what you can hold on to and know you're going to have tomorrow and for eternity is the Lord Jesus. You know for sure that you're going to have Him. He never backs up. He never backs out. He does exactly what He says that He will do. So here we have this desire that Paul has in his prayer. Do you pray for each other this way? This is one of the verses I use to pray for my staff members all the time. Lord, give them this. Why? I mean, you know, you probably could understand my position, you know, dealing with Joe and Dan. It just heightens my prayer life is all it does, brothers. But I, I'm not praying this because they're dumb. That's not, this is not that kind of knowledge. This is a growth of relationship in Jesus, the deepening of it. And that they come out of that with hope beaming on their faces. We believe what God is doing. We believe what He's doing. We trust Him for it. We know we have a future that is just absolutely unexplainable to us. Unfathomable. We never thought that we'd be part of this inheritance that God is giving to us. Now look at this. You're looking at prayer. This is the kind of praying that you want to do as a Christian. This is the kind of praying. Stop praying so much to keep the saints out of heaven. Pray for a happy passage as they cross the river. But the ones we've got to worry about are the ones that are left behind. These are the ones that are the problem. So we have to pray for each other in this way. So the content of the prayer. Now look at the confidence in the prayer. I mean, y'all are in a lot of trouble. Thank you, guys. You did put the time up there because I have no idea where my watch is right now. That is always a dangerous issue. So let's, let's go on. Okay. So look at the confidence in the prayer. I will move along. Verses 19 through 23. Hear the confidence now in this praying. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The confidence in his prayer. Now, here's, here's what brings it. You, you have this, this gap here that, that is, is spoken of. And, and the gap is the knowledge and the insight and the wisdom that the Spirit of God gives. And then you have this hope. This anticipation, the future things. And so what is it that links those two things together? The power of God. The power of God. That's what, he's, that's what he's betting everything on. The power of God. And so he describes his power. God's power in Christ's resurrection. His great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him through death. There are three different words here 
that are a kind of power that are in verses 19 through 20, the first half of verse 20. Three different kinds of words. Now, sometimes preachers get hung up on that and they want to parse each word there and find some different meaning. But here's the way I take it. That Paul purposely piled up three kinds of power words to convince us that God's power is unchanging, unrivaled, and it cannot be overthrown. This is the kind of power that you can be confident in. It's power, power, and power of God. Three times. The hope, this unshakable confidence in the inheritance that we're looking for. How, what do we base that on? His power. That God is able to fulfill what He has told us He will do. If He raised His Son from the dead, then what would stop Him from raising us from the dead? If He has seated His Son at the right hand of power, what will stop Him from causing us to be in His presence on that day? Can anything stop Him? And Paul's answer is no. Nothing. Nothing can stop His promise. And so here we have this power that makes our inheritance such a certainty that we're filled with hope. His resurrection guarantees that the resurrected life and the inheritance that accompanies that life are indeed reality. God's power in His resurrection. Here's God's power in Christ's ascension. And seated Him, verse 20 says, and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Seating Christ at the Father's right hand signifies some things. It signifies the authority of Christ. It signifies the dignity of Christ. It signifies the completion of His salvific purpose. Our confidence is derived from the fact that the Son of God who died for us and mediates for us is in the position of favor and power and authority. Now how do we know that He's there? How do we know He's there? Well, the Word of God tells us. How do you believe the Word of God? By the Spirit of God. That's all the evidence you really need. That's the evidence you need. If you are believing it, it's because the Spirit of God has done it in you. That's miraculous. That's God at work. You say, well, my co-workers won't believe that. It doesn't matter if they won't believe it. The issue is, do you believe it? You're a follower of Jesus. How did you get saved? Wasn't by your own initiative, I'll tell you that. Wasn't by your own plan. Wasn't by your own power. How did you get the life of Christ in you? That wasn't you. That's God's power. What gives you the ability to look at the scripture? You ever had those moments you went, oh yeah. Right? You're reading along the scripture, even a boring part. You're reading along, you know. Like, well, I got to do this, Pastor. I have to read the Bible. I got to read this thing. I'm going to read it all. And so you're reading, and then all of a sudden, whoa. The Spirit of God. And you read about Jesus. and You love Him more. It's the Spirit of God. And how do we get that? How does that happen? Because He has poured out the Spirit because He is at the Father's right hand. When He ascended upon high, He gave gifts to men. That's what He did, the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. That's what He has done for us. Now look at God's power in Christ's dominion. And look, look what He says. And He has put all things under His feet. And gave him as head over all things to the church. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, so his dominion of all, all of creation. 
Did COVID-19 sneak in on Jesus? Let me give you a hint. He caused it. See, this, this thinking that we have in a dichotomy that anything that's hard is not from God and everything that's easy is from God. That is heresy. Which hero of the Bible would believe that? You think Abraham would believe it? What about David? What about Job? Oh, if, you know, God gives easy. This, stuff's, this hard stuff, is, I don't know where that's from. Really? What about old Jonah? You mill around a little whale puke for a while, it'll convince you. So, that kind of thinking. What about Paul? He's in prison. And he's going to die. What, what about this? God is in charge. Jesus is over all of creation. Over it. That means he intricately works in it, even through evil people. But look at this further. His dominion, God's power is in Christ's dominion, not only over creation, but over the church as well. He's head over all things to the church, which is his body. You know what should be in charge of your body? It should be this noggin that's on the top of it. It's in charge. It's in charge of it. Jesus is the head of his church. He's in charge. Now, there are Christians, again, that read this so individualistically. They're like this. Well, that means I answer to nobody. I just answer to Jesus. Well, if you would read Jesus' book, you would find out that it doesn't work that way. You go off on a tangent like that where you finally found your liberty in Jesus. means I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. That's ridiculous. That's libertarianism. It doesn't work in politics or in religion. Which is his body. Now, get this about the church. Okay, so here's the thing that is, is just the hardest thing for me to just embrace this right now. But the church is his body. And what else is the church? The fullness of him. The fullness of him. Meaning what? Well, the word is something like this. It's like a ship that's equipped with sailors and supplies and everything that's needed. The church, in some way, is the manifestation of the fully equipped Jesus. Here's the reality. We show Jesus. The Bible teaches Jesus. His church shows Jesus. That's why it's so essential. Church membership is an absolute essentiality. You have to have membership and the membership must mean something. Why? Because we're trying to say by the line we're drawing, these are the people who are making a genuine effort to show Jesus. The people outside of that line are not making an effort. So therefore, don't look to them. Don't look to them. Look to the ones. You say, well, they have all kinds of flaws. Oh, sure they do. The body of Jesus has always had scars. We got them. So if you're looking for the flawless body, that's not going to happen until the resurrection, right? But in some way, in some way, we are here completing the proclamation of Jesus to the world. 
just by our mere existence. That church is phenomenal. I don't know about you, but if I wanted somebody to represent me, Tim Klein, I'm not sure I'd pick y'all. Think about that. Think about you as well. Is that what you would do? No. You'd pick the best and the prettiest and the most perfect and all that. You'd pick those people. And that's the opposite of what Jesus does. He is the head. He rules in his way through his word in the church. What about you as Christians? So if you're a follower of Jesus, a devoted follower of Jesus. Okay, so one of the things that probably already you're feeling guilty about is your prayer practices. You know, I think I, you're, always, you're already thinking, I don't pray enough. Okay, let's, let's throw that out for a minute. Let, let's don't worry about praying enough. Because it's not the volume of your praying that matters. It's actually the precision of your praying that matters. How do you pray in such a way that you know that God is going to get all up in it? When you start praying things like what Paul prays. When you thank God for your church. God's in it. Don't you think that makes Jesus, I mean, if we, can, if we can put human emotions on Jesus for a moment, how does it make him feel when you pray and say, Lord, I, I love your people? Pretty good, right? Pretty good. Now, how would it make him feel if he said, I can't stand your people, they're driving me nuts, I'm not going back. I mean, you might as well walk up to each other and go, I can't stand your family, I don't want to be around you. Right? So this is the issue. Now, again, the invisible church, the universal church, oh, that's easy to love because you don't have to deal with them. But what God has done to us is he's made it actually practical and applicable. Loving the church, broadly speaking, means you've got to glue your life into a local church, and those people are your targets. It's easy to love people from different denominations. You meet with them for Bible study once a week, and you don't ever argue over anything because everybody's tiptoeing around the main issues and you just talk about God just loves us all and whoa, everybody leaves there edified. It's easy to love those people because you don't have to do anything with them. But when you've got to unite with people actually, bond with them, come together and believe the same things and they'll go out and accomplish the same mission, it can get messy and it can get ugly. But as a church... What do you want to be known for? What are the kind of things you want to be known for? Do you want to be known for whatever you accomplish on the athletic field? Do you want to be, what do you want to be known for? What you accomplish in the schoolroom? What you accomplish at work? I mean, some of those things are significant. They're not insignificant, but they're not of ultimate significance. I read this story about General Douglas MacArthur, and he said, I, by profession, I'm a soldier, and I take pride in that fact. But I am prouder, infinitely prouder, to be a father. A soldier destroys in order to build. A father only builds, never destroys. The one has the potentialities of death. The other embodies creation of life. And while the hordes of death are mighty, the battalions of life are mightier still. It is my hope that my son, when I am gone, will remember me. Not from the battle, but in the home. Repeating with him our simple daily prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
What do you want to be known for? Church, what do you want to be known for? I've never wanted to be known to be the event church. I wanted to be known as the church that preaches the gospel. The gospel is good enough. It's enough. The power of the gospel is enough. We've been doing an experiment, haven't we? Six years long, an experiment. And the question really is this. Is the exposition of scripture really enough to give the church life? Is the, is the Bible rightly taught enough to win the loss to Jesus? I submit to you the answer is yes, it is. The power in praying. How do you want to be remembered? Pray this way. Look for faith and look for love in the followers of Jesus, especially your local church. You know the names of those people, actually. Be the kind of church that others can thank God for. I don't care if people disagree with me, but hopefully they can look at our congregation and say, but you know what? We need you in this community. In our praying, major on the big things that people would, by the Spirit's power, understand and love Jesus more. You see, Paul knew how to drive sin out of a believer's life. Do you know how to drive sin out? It's not by a therapy group, friends. It's by focusing and concentrating and giving your heart again to Jesus and let the Spirit of God generate hope in you, the hope of your calling, and to remind you that you have an inheritance because you're adopted as a son. And so, therefore, give Jesus all that you got. That will drive sin out. Let your prayers always be anchored to the unstoppable and unfailing power of God. That's what this section of Scripture would teach us. My question for us, dear, dear friend, is this. You're a Christian. Does your prayer life resemble any of this? If not, simple. Change it now. Oh, Pastor, I don't know how. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Take this section of Scripture and start praying it. And pray it. Pray it, pray it all month. Until it starts ringing true in your heart. Begin to pray it. Thank God for your church, first of all. Stop complaining. Start thanking. Thank God for your church. The things you see that are right, thank God for that. God is doing that. The things that are not right, that ain't God's fault, right? So thank God for that. Ask these things for people that you know. God, give them the spirit of wisdom. Revelation, the knowledge of Him. Give them understanding of heart. Give them heart understanding. Not just head understanding, but heart understanding. That they'd be filled with hope for what you've promised. Let them start living that way. You can pray. You can change your prayer life now. And it can become powerful. It'll become mighty. It'll change your church. Change your community. And it'll change you. Now what if you're not a follower of Jesus here? You know about Jesus. You're okay with Jesus. You know. You think he's good. I think I'm, I'm good with that. I, I like what he taught. He's a good moral teacher. Well, he taught some moral things like, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. How do you like that one? If you love father and mother more than me, sister, brother, even your own children more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you're not willing to take up your cross daily and die for my sake, you're not worthy of me. 
You can't be my follower. Following Jesus is all or nothing. What do you do? I would start with a simple prayer. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I have not been following you, but instead I've been resisting you. I haven't been your friend. I've been your enemy. Everything that you say, I've brought it into question and determined in my own life what really ought to be. You would say things about your father, and I would contradict you and say, no, that's not how God is. Do you see what you're doing? You're trying to trump Jesus all the time. That's how we live our lives before Christ. You need mercy. You need mercy. And here's the thing about our Father. As ugly as we are to Him, as awful enemies as we'll be to Him, He will extend mercy. He's already done it in the cross. God has demonstrated His love for us in this way. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Put all your hope in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus for sinners. All your hope in that. Nothing else. Nothing else. Just Him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for giving us the Word through the Spirit about Your Son. And Father, I pray that You would work in hearts and minds as You already have been today. But bring it to fruition. If now is the time for that to come to to place of, of giving birth to some kind of response, then let it be. Father, if you're working and it's still a ways off, then let it be. Lord, we'll praise you and thank you because by faith we believe you are working in each of our hearts. For those who have not yet followed Christ, Lord, make it an urgent reality in their lives. There's a hell to gain. There's a hell, there's a hell to avoid and a heaven to gain. And I pray, Father, they would see that. And that Christ is the way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, through a relationship with Christ. Help them, God, to see that. Open the eyes of their heart. The devil is blinded. Open the eyes of their heart that they may see. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We